Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Art Business Podcast. My name is uh, Dr. David Bellingham. I'm Programme Director of the Master's Degree in Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. And um, my guest today is an alumna of that very programme. She studied the MA in 2016-17. Welcome, Laura Pay. Thank you, David, for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. And the reason that I've asked Laura to be my honoured guest this week is because we're right, I think I'm right in saying, Laura, we're right in the middle of the Singapore Art Week. And Laura, you, you'll be able to read her bio. I think I, I think if I remember rightly, you were born in Hong Kong, but ended up really mu very much operating out of Singapore, Laura. Yes, I'm Singaporean, but I was born in Hong Kong. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah and actually spent quite a lot of time outside of Singapore as well. Just bear with me a second. I'm just going to switch off my emails. Otherwise, you, the, the, the listeners will be hearing notifications all the time. So they're switched off now. No, exactly. So, um, so Laura is a really good person. She's very much, um, as you'll hope you'll see, she's very much immersed in the Singapore art scene. I I don't know about any of the listeners whether they've been to Singapore. I we used to actually have a branch of Sotheby's Institute in Singapore about 10 to 15 years ago. I think it lasted about four or five years. And I used to go out there for these intensive <clears throat> weeks of I think I was we were teaching art, the MA art business. And just a couple of things about that, because it might interest the listeners about the slightly different educational models in Southeast Asia. It was very normal for people to fly in from all over Southeast Asia, as far away as India, as far away as the USA. They chose to come to Singapore, which was really nice for Singapore. And we teach them intensively for a week. <laughs> and I was teaching ethics in the art market. And then they would they, they'd go away for a, another four weeks, I think, and write their assignment. And then I'd grade it and so on. But um, sadly, for reasons I won't go into now, that institute uh, closed down. And I think there's been a lot of changes since I was there, which we will no doubt talk about, you know, in the course of the recording. Anyway, enough of that. I'm just going to start, Laura, as ever, by just asking if you can tell us about your favourite city, if you have one. Yeah, actually, I think my favourite city changes all the time. But at the moment, I would say it's Bangkok. Yeah, so Bangkok is really like, the I would say, like the heart of Southeast Asia. And it's a really great place for contemporary art. The people are so warm and friendly, and yeah, and it's. I, I think it's just such a great place to to be and and to see things, and I, I think everything you just feel the energy there, and everything is so vibrant. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I I don't know Bangkok other than mythologically. You know, it's. Mm -hmm. I think most people will have heard of Bangkok, probably as some somewhere, you know, from a Western, a traditional Western viewpoint, as somewhere exotic. And where you where you go and you, where you can have a lot of fun if you're if you're a but but maybe there are other aspects there are other aspects that about that because I think the image that the West has of Bangkok is as a, a pleasure place. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, but I I think there I think I think that's a lot about the Western perception of Asia is that it's always like you know very exotic, and maybe it's just because the culture is so different from what you see and experience in the West. Yeah, which is why I always encourage people to, to to you know, come to Asia by themselves and you know discover Asia for what it is. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and you know, obviously the feedback is always positive, and I think culturally, you hear a lot of good things about all of these places, obviously, and including, of course, Singapore. Which, well, during the course of the conversation, you know, I can say now that I was I I loved the particularly the public museum scene. Mm -hmm. In Singapore, they've got the most amazing museums and most amazing architecture, but we can talk about that later. So do you have a kind of a non-urban location that you particularly love? Non-urban location? Like yeah, countryside or beach? <laughs> I, I'm more of a mountains person. Mm. Yeah, so I love like the Alps, um, just being in snow, I think, because it's just so, it, it's, it really feels like a retreat. Like where it's, you know, it's just, everything is just white and it's so quiet and you're just, you know, skiing by yourself. Yeah. So I really like kind of like snowy mountain resorts. That's it. So you, you go, you would go skiing rather than hiking. 
what we in the UK call walking in the in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer I prefer skiing to hiking or um, yeah. or beach. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's the first time anyone has ever spoken about the mountains, and you're quite right. It's a a lovely place to escape because just that pure whiteness of the landscape is just a great metaphor for what we should be doing when we're on vacation, i.e., like a bit of mindfulness, like emptying our minds. I I totally agree. I love I love the snow. We don't see enough of it in London, of course. <laughs> And of course, Singapore would never see snow because, if I remember rightly, it's right on the equator, pretty much. Yeah, so we never have snow, and it's um tropical, humid, sunny all year round. I remember that. I I, I had to wear like two. I I took all linen shirts, <laughs> and I I I used to have to kind of chain. I used to wear like two a day because of the humidity in Singapore. <laughs> Any listeners yeah. who've been there will know that. I mean, it, and it's lovely. I mean, you get used to it very quickly, and it's, it's it's good for someone like me who's quite speedy naturally because it just slows me down. I love that. And so so what about architecture? I mean, I remember in Singapore, obviously. To me, it was the first Asian city I've been to. In fact, <laughs> in fact, it's the only Asian city I've been to. Forgive me. <laughs> and, oh, and oh, okay. That isn't, that, yeah, no, that isn't that isn't because of of not wanting to go. It's literally just the usual time and where else I have to go on vacation and work for work and so on. But it's the only. It's literally the only Asian city I've been to. But and I, I do remember one of the things was that was some obviously there's a lot of. British imperialist architecture there, like neoclassical, but there also there were these wonderful temples that are part of obviously Asian Asian religion. But where would what would you say is your favorite building? I think Singapore's architecture is a mix of colonial style buildings and also contemporary architecture. Sure, which is like you know Marina Bay Sands. You you see all of that that very fancy architecture. In terms of I quite like the colonial, the colonial buildings because I feel like it's, um, it's, it's not what you really see in the world today. And mm. Singapore, they're exceptionally well preserved. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and so, yeah. So we do have like kind of English colonial style buildings, but also what we call Peranakan, which is what was, what was left over when Singapore became independent from Malaya. Yeah. So it's like Malay style kind of um, like pastel pastel buildings yeah i mean and you've already hit on 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 something that is very noticeable in singapore it's it's very like london in in some ways i.e the demographics of being very mm-hmm. multicultural obviously more multicultural in terms of like asian populations from different nations including china and malaysia mm-hmm. and indonesia i remember there there's a lot of people from those nations and that that I mean, just for listeners, that it makes it a very comfortable place, I would say, to to go and visit if you are a Londoner or used to a city like London, I would say. I, I remember one of the contemporary buildings, actually, which was the, the concert hall, mm-hmm. which I think people joking, locals jokingly compared to one of those plot yeah, those those stinky fruits <laughs> that are actually yeah. really nice once you peel them. It's like a big green hedgehog. On the side of the river, if I remember rightly, but beautiful. yeah, I think I think yeah, there's quite a landmark in Singapore. Absolutely, and and that reminds me, actually, listeners might be interested in knowing that Laura is actually a very accomplished musician. I, I think you play the cello and have, have played solo cello in concerts. Uh, I play the harp. It's the harp. <laughs> oh goodness! Apologies. Yeah, it's the harp, which is which is amazing. I mean, a very unusual instrument, very difficult one to carry around. Yeah, definitely. And are you still playing, you know, professionally or semi-professionally? Um, professionally, I, I play sometimes, but not too often mm-hmm. nowadays because I'm focusing more on, on my publishing house, which we will talk, which we can talk about later as well. Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess the I guess the net, that brings us on to the next question: If you are a harpist, what do you have a favorite piece of music? If you could only take one piece of music to a desert island with your harp, what might it be? If I could take one piece of music, I think it would definitely be something contemporary. Mm. Yeah, contemporary with like, you know, using lots of different techniques that the harp has, just because I feel like I could never get bored. Absolutely. And do, do you yeah. have a particular composer in mind or just challenging music that is written for harp? Uh, is there quite a lot of music written for harp by contemporary composers? 
Yeah, there's quite a lot of music. I mean, the development of the harp really started in the early 1900s in France. And then from there, it just it just took off. So yeah, so today there's a lot of contemporary music being written for harp. Yeah, a re- beautiful instrument. Of course, there, there, there are other, there are harps and harps. There's mm-hmm. in, in the UK, we've got like a lot of a lot of former Celtic culture and folk music is using like the Irish harp, and uh, and that's mm-hmm. that could be very. And the, I think in Brittany, in France, there's a lot of like contemporary folk musicians from France and the UK in particular. I think that actually sing accompanied by the harp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah difficult instrument i'm sure to play and and then finally again a really difficult question i hate it when people ask me these questions about favorites because it depends on your mood but again you know if you could take one work of art for that desert island what might it be even reluctantly leaving others behind um if i could take one work of art contemporary again? I, I, yeah it would be contemporary but i i kind of feel like it would be it would be an, a piece of art that I currently has. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's this artist called Balinese artist, so Indonesian artist called Chitra Sasmita. Mm-hmm. And she, and her work is really based on, it's, it's, I mean, her stories are derived from traditional Balinese mythology, but she, she kind of uses the female as a figure of empowerment. Yeah, because females, um, women were always seen as kind of like second class in Bali and they don't have the same rights as men. And so the stories that she uses are really, um, inspired by, you know, folklore and folk tales, but she uses, she integrates like female figures and different kinds of animals, um, into her stories, like her canvas works to kind of create a new, a new kind of storyline. Sounds, sounds very topical. It sounds amazing. I think that if you could um, if you could send me a link for the artist, and then mm-hmm. I'll share it with the listeners to 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 look to look at this artist's work. It sounds sounds amazing. I've I've actually in the nineteen eighties, a long time ago, I actually wrote a book on Celtic mythology, but you know, one on Greek mythology, and then they the publishers said, "Oh, is you know, this was well received. Could is there is could you do another one in our series?" And I I leapt at the idea of doing Celtic mythology from my own nation because our stories have got forgotten as many myths have got forgotten in contemporary culture so i love mythology levi strauss the structural anthropologist the french structural anthropologist he one of my favorite quotes from him is myths are good to think with you know you can do anything you like with myth and it's it's fluid it changes different generations can slightly change the story to adapt to their own culture but you know the underlying structures as levi strauss pointed out remain very similar it's the surface narrative that can change yeah and i think like it's reinterpreted by every generation yeah and well. now of course the feminist looking looking at the women in 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 mythology who are often felt like in greek mythology often very very powerful figures mm-hmm when we revisit that yeah so so moving to singapore I, I i'm aware that a lot of my listeners you know may not have been to singapore uh, maybe you could start laura just by just by giving us a very very brief maybe even the history from the from the the, the last century just very briefly because i think that affects the art and cultural world in singapore maybe say something along the way about its demographics and its politics Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Singapore is a very young country. So we've, we are 50, it's only been 59 years since our independence. But let me go back to the earlier colonial years. So Singapore has always been a trading port between the East and West due to our strategic location between Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, so for a long time, it was part of the Malay archipelago. And in 1819, um, a British man called Sempert Raffles came Malaya and signed a treaty with yeah. the two members of the royal family of Johor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave the British East India Company the right to set up a trading post in Singapore. And so the British, the British were in Singapore for a total of 144 years until 1963 when Singapore officially became a state in Malaysia. And of course, in between uh, World War II happened and that's when Singapore was occupied by the Japanese between 1942 and 1945. And, and after the Japanese occupation, 
the trust in the British really declined. And that's when um, the British thought, okay, we need to start giving Singapore a bit more self-governance. And that happened until 1963 when we merged with Malaya. Um, and then two years later, we became, we separated and became an independent nation in 1965. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and this, that's when the modern Singapore really began. And I would say the success can really be credited to one person called Lee Kuan Yew, who was the found, who's considered the founding father of Singapore and was our prime minister for 31 years. Um, and because he knew that Singapore is a city of immigrants, with many people of different ethnicities, such as uh, Malays, Indians, um, Eurasians, and actually quite a lot of Jewish people at that time, who arrived in Singapore during the colonial years. And actually, since the 1860s, and I think a lot of people don't know this, is that Singapore has always been majority Chinese. Yeah, and due to the British, this is due to the British investment in labor-intensive industries, such as rubber and tin. And so many Chinese immigrants moved here from mainland China to work in labor-intensive industries such as agriculture, construction, shipping and mining before starting their own um, very successful businesses um, after they had stayed for, for a few more years. And because Lee Kuan Yew knew that this multiculturalism was extremely important to develop Singapore um, to become a very prosperous nation, he promoted multiracial societies and also English as the lingua franca in order to integrate all the immigrants. And, and actually Singapore is the only country in Asia to have English as the primary spoken and written language. Yeah. And of course that is moving on to Singapore Art Week and Singapore as a cultural <laughs> art location. That is something that's going for it. I think in the fin- in financial world, I remember when I was there, at lunchtime walking along the river and there are all these big you know financial buildings and and I couldn't believe how many like london accents i heard to these businessmen mainly you know businessmen and women you know having lunch along along the river was um you know and i, I think the english thing is 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 a very is one of its big strengths were it to position itself more strongly within the international art world uh, but, but but before we come to that I, I just wanted to apologize for laughing when you mentioned raffles, but I, I do remember going to this very touristy, maybe that's the wrong word, like colonial historical bar called Raffles. Is it a hotel or a bar <laughs> in Singapore? Yeah, it's called the Raffles Hotel. The Raffles yeah, Hotel. And, and then, yeah, they have a very famous bar there. That's right. Very famous bar. And I think a lot of cultural tourists will 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 go there once. And and I remember one of the one of the terrible customs that could that persist there i don't know if it's still happening is that you you get peanuts with your beer or wine or cocktail and you you know in their husks and you throw the husks on the ground and then a, a waiter comes up and sweeps them up is that yeah, still happening? Um, I, it is yeah so, so there's a tradition of the bar um, yeah. and so yeah when you go and you still see peanut husks all all over yeah and and i, and I remember thinking that it's um it, it 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 not only was it a, an experience of the of the romance of colonial colonial you know the positives of colonialism if you like but it was also reminded me how appalling colonialism could be in terms of class systems and so on that some other mm. person that we could just throw these things on the floor and someone else comes and picks them up you know <laughs> so that was a very interesting experience for me to 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 understand my own nation's you know that my own nations, the positives and negatives of imperialism out of the UK. But as you say, at the same time, those colonial buildings are, are really quite beautiful in their own way, although they signify less beautiful things, perhaps. There's a cricket. I remember them playing cricket. England at this very moment or in India, another of the big colonies playing cricket. You know, it, it feels very, very kind of English in many ways. But coming back to the to the art maybe i could start this discussion this conversation i from my point of view i remember going to muse there, there were contemporary art museums that that were really really astonishingly cutting edge mainly showing like southeast asian artists like chinese contemporary artists this was this was before the financial crash of 2008 when chinese contemporary artists were getting really well known internationally i was seeing 
some amazing exhibitions there. But I remember the modern museum, it was interesting the way it was arranged because it, it contained modernist art often learnt from the West, like a lot of these artists mm. that emigrated to Paris and so on, bringing back Parisian modernist ideas or using them in their own art. But they were from all over those na those nations we've already spoken about, not just from Singapore, they're from in Ind Indonesia, Malaysia and so on. So maybe you could just say something from your point of view about, about you know, the history of art in Singapore, maybe from the modern period to the present day, before we start talking about the art week. Yeah, definitely. I think the most important period for the development of art in Singapore would be in the 1920s and 30s, where, like you said, you know, a lot of art artists emigrated to Singapore from places like London and Paris, and they brought back the techniques that they had learned in the West. And we call this period, artists from this period, the Nanyang School. So this include artists like, you know, Georgette Chen, Liu Kang, Chen Wen-si, and all of their works can be found in our National Gallery today. And this period is also when the first art school in Singapore, the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts, was founded in 1938. Yeah, so this East and West merge of traditions continued through the 1970s, especially with Chinese ink, where artists schooled in traditional Chinese calligraphy and ink painting also went abroad to study and brought back um, Western techniques with the traditions of Chinese ink. And it was only until the 1970s, and I think this is in tandem with the global development of contemporary art, that contemporary art started emerging in Singapore, but particularly in performance and conceptual art. And also, so this is also when the second art, tertiary arts institution, the LaSalle College of Art, um, was formed and then followed about, like about 20 years later with the um, School of Art, Media and Design. Um, at the Nanyang Technological University, which they're actually very, very strong in research and new media purposes. And yeah, I think the, I think in terms of like the auction houses, um, also after the 1970s, in the, in 1985, Sotheby's was the first auction house to set up an office in Singapore. And five years later was, was followed by Christie's. Um, and today, Phillips and Barnums also have a representative, but, um, but they don't have like an official office. And we also have a handful of smaller auction houses, 33 auction and two from Indonesia called Masterpiece and Larazati. But, but you're also right in a sense that, you know, the, all of the art that we see sold at these auction houses and also in Southeast Asian sales in Hong Kong, they're still very much modern Southeast Asian art or traditional. Chinese ink painting and calligraphy. Yeah, and I think for major, for major institutions, we have three government-owned institutions. The Singapore Art Museum, which was established only in 1995, which is quite late, and that focuses on contemporary art. The Singapore Tyler Print Institute in 2002, which specializes in printmaking and paper-based techniques. And then finally, the National Gallery which opened in 2015, um, which has the largest holdings of Southeast Asian art in the world. Yeah, and another major museum, which is actually privately owned by an American company, is the Art Science Museum, which is part of Marina Bay Sands. And that's focusing on science and technology and is owned by Las Vegas Sands Corporation. Yeah, I remember when I was there, am I right in saying that the marina basins was still being developed like in the early new millennium i don't think yeah, it, it, was, it was still being built yes. yeah so so that i think things must have changed a lot i mean my my experience of the art world when i was when i was there so you know obviously i had these ma art business students and you know i was trying to also do maybe some visits to see the singapore art scene at that time, I remember it was quite disappointing that there wasn't, you know, it, it's not like when you're in London or, or Manhattan or Paris where where there are kind of like commercial art galleries everywhere selling art. It, it was quite a, at that time, it was quite a small part of the town where almost like a, I seem to remember even like a block and a, rather than a kind of district where there are a lot of different galleries selling different kinds of art. And the the other thing I remember from that time you know, early early years of the millennium 
was, but this was very interesting to me uh, when I began to realize that this was a free port and what free port means for the art world. So, but the free port then, and, and maybe it's still true today, isn't in the city. You have to go out to the, the dock area and warehouses. And I remember that, that they used to have these amazing shows of very well-known contemporary artists, for example, in the warehouses on the side of the docks, because that was part, that was legally part of the free port still. So mm -hmm. American dealers would actually literally fly or, you know, bring works of art in and they'd do an exhibition in in the docks so that so that Southeast, presumably not just Singaporean collectors, but people from all over Southeast Asia would come there to buy buy the work. So you had that kind of art market going on in as part of the Freeport, but not within the city. And then within the city, it was it had fantastic public galleries that you've just described. And but but the actual commercial art side wasn't developed then i don't know you know maybe that you could now say a little bit about about the topography of of the art world at the moment in singapore yeah so singapore actually i think due due to how singapore has developed since independence it's a very highly structured government run kind of i would say almost like an organization <laughs> Kind of like you know, a CEO planning the long term development of the organization. That's that's very much how Singapore is run. It's very conformist, and it's also very conservative. And I think the issue with art in Singapore is that it's very broad, and it's um the government is always trying to appeal to the masses. Like you know, art is for everyone, um, which which works in in certain aspects, but doesn't work in certain aspects like for commercial galleries, which is you know it's a business of selling. Um, art of a certain price point, which is not available to everyone. So in Singapore, art is usually viewed as one of the following. The first is the entertainment, which is, for example, you know, graffiti street art murals or immersive experiences like Team Lab. The, se the second is as a traditional craft, like weaving or calligraphy, where the focus is really on preserving a technique, a heritage or a culture. Uh, the third is as a luxury good or commodity, so similar to high-end fashion, or investments or, you know, just buying something to decorate your house. And the fourth is contemporary art, which is what we find in museums, biennials, and in some galleries around the world. Um, but contemporary art, I think, is really about challenging traditional concepts and making us question, uh, which is a big problem for the development of contemporary art in Singapore because it is in the DNA of the citizens and of the people of the country to be conformist and to be conservative in our daily habits, um, our way of living and how we think. Because contemporary arts requires some kind of chaos, but Singapore doesn't have any chaos because, you know, we are like, you know, a picture perfect, um, country with like lots of rules. And, you know, we can't even, we can't even do a public protest without a license here. Um, others we get thrown in jail. Um, and state censorship is also a very big thing. Like on themes of, you know, politics, religion, race, and sex. And that inhibits a lot of artists from risk taking and also discourages the production and development of contemporary art. And this is why a lot of very strong Singaporean artists actually establish their careers outside of Singapore. And they go on to have very successful careers in places like New York, London, and Berlin. And in some sense, there's also this also relates to the collectors that we have in Singapore and the collecting habits. Because if collectors here only see art that is entertaining, traditional, or decorative, it will be very difficult to develop a good collector base in, a, in an organic manner. And this is regardless of the amount of funds that the government would invest in the arts. Um, and they have really invested a lot. So Singapore, the way they do the city planning is always... It's always how it can be, it can contribute to making Singapore a very attractive place for people to invest in, of people to move to. And so the government, um, over the past 20 years have, has developed, um, this thing called the Renaissance City Plan, which is now called the Singapore Arts Plan. So it was reviewed every four years. Um, now it's every five years. Yeah. But that's when they started the, 
So it started in 2004, and the Singapore Biennial began in 2006. And that's organized by Singapore Art Museum. So that's once every two years and it's still going on. And then the galleries, contemporary galleries district called Gilman Barrett's started in 2012. And actually, I mean, it was a big failure. I'm considered a big failure in the art world because, you know, we could, I mean, like there were several things that could have contributed to the failure, such as, you know, poor planning or, you know, pro- making a lot of promises, but not delivering on them. Yeah, but I mean, it still exists today. And there are about, I would say about eight to 10 galleries in Gilman Barracks. And so actually we do have an Art Galleries Association of Singapore. And there are 24 members in the association. But I would say only about 12 of them are considered like internationally active galleries. And out of those 12, only two Singaporean owned. Yeah, so actually a lot of foreign galleries like Shang Art, from Shanghai, Ota Fina from Japan, Sunrim Tagore from America. Um, they all have locations in Singapore, but only two galleries are actually owned by Singaporeans. Do you, do you, I, I, you know, you've been very, thank you for being very open about, about mm-hmm. and critical in, in some ways about the, the, the production and consumption of art in, in Singapore being quite conservative. I mean, this is something that you hear and that I witnessed when I was there as well. I remember being invited to a, an opening, you know, private view, lovely hotel lobby. And, and I remember thinking, you know, this, I don't like this. This art is pretty, but it's not what I would consider, you know, good contemporary art. And and I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head by saying that you know the, the it's kind of almost encouraged by the system to, that the art remains fairly decorative and pretty and not challenging if you like to philosophies and politics and, and and so on. So I can understand why frustrated contemporary Singaporean artists might might form a diaspora of Singaporeans in the you know out, outside of of Singapore, but but then. Those commercial galleries you're talking about, well, well, with the 24 members of the guild, if I can call it that, do any of them specialise? You said that some of them specialise in international art, but do any of them specialise in what we would recognise as internationally interesting contemporary art, the kind of art that might appear in MoMA or Pompidou Centre or Tate Modern, if you understand what I'm getting at? Yes, but yeah, about, about 12 of them. Yes. Um, who do that? Yeah, I mean, who, you know, participate in the um, major art fairs like Freeze Art Basel. Sure. Yeah, so about 12 of them. And they maybe have like about four or between four to six shows per year in Singapore. Yes. Oh, that's, that's yeah. good. So at least that is a seed that is growing within, within Singapore. Because as I understand it, there's, there's particularly recent years, I think, haven't quite a lot of Chinese high ultra high net worth worth individuals moved to Singapore so you've got suddenly this influx of people with a lot of money who are probably going to eventually want to signify that wealth by collecting art but uh, what kind of art what is their taste so let's let's just take the Chinese is it is it every kind of taste or do they have a particular specific kind of taste yeah actually in terms of you know the galleries in Singapore they don't um, a lot of them don't make the they don't really sell much to Singaporeans, to locals, yeah. but they just use Singapore as a base. Yes. For either for Asia or Southeast Asia because yeah. you know it's, it's very quite easy to do business here. Yeah. And I mean I mean like you know, ten years many of them have been here for like ten years and of course now it's extremely expensive the real estate, but ten years ago it wasn't so expensive. Sure. But, but yeah, are so, there, are there are tax reasons with the free port environment that also make it a suitable location for those galleries or, or not? I think it's more of, because Singapore is the most developed economy in Southeast Asia. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense to have, you know, if they have a lot, happen to have a lot of Southeast Asian clients to, to have the gallery or showroom in Singapore. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because like, yeah, historically <laughs> a lot of like wealthier Southeast Asians have, have homes in Singapore. Brilliant, brilliant. But generally yeah. speaking, we could say that that generally within Singapore, it's those any art collectors are going to be relatively conservative in their taste, but there may be some exceptions. 
and that quite you know Singapore, as we've already said, is a is quite a multicultural place. So there may also be people going into those galleries and buying art who are like wealthy people just working in the financial district there, but but basically you know from from the UK, from America, mm. and so on. So they're, yeah, they're, and yeah, yeah, and I mean, to, I mean, Singapore is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Mm. And you know the top ten cities with the most billionaires in the world. Yeah, yeah. So mm. there are about like four thousand five hundred ultra high net worth individuals in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And in and one interesting thing to note is that in twenty twenty, so like just before COVID, there were only four hundred single family offices in Singapore. And at the end of last year, it grew to a thousand five hundred. Wow. Yeah, so in the span of like, you know, two to three years, you know, there was like such a huge growth in family, people setting up family offices in Singapore. Mm. And the, I mean, you know, the minimum requirement for us, for, you know, assets invested into Singapore to start a family office is um, at least 40 million USD. Wow. So, you know, that it's not a small amount. Mm. Um, but yeah, I have noticed like, you know, an influx of wealthy people moving to Singapore um, from all over the world. Like you said, you know, the UK, the US, India, Hong Kong. And especially mainland China. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, this is all partially due to, you know, what happened in Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think a lot of families with young children who kind of want, you know, a good mix of like English, you know, they want the, the kids to be able to speak English, but also kind of grow up in an Asian kind of Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, and, you know, looking for a high quality life for their young families. Um, and they often come from high income professions, such as finance, consulting, oil, gas. Yeah. And, and actually a lot of these new imports are actually quite, you know, very dynamic, enthusiastic people in their thirties, forties or fifties. And a lot of them also are really art patrons or they buy art. Maybe not necessarily collectors, but they are, they have an, they have a keen interest in art. So, so the infrastructure is already there. For what mm-hmm. might make this place very attractive for international art markets, um, and I guess yeah. the Singapore Art Week is a, is an event where which which happens in late January, and maybe I could maybe one of the things you could talk about is I think it's in its second year the Singapore Art Week is that right? Um, or, Singapore or Art Week, yeah, Singapore Art Week. We are in our twelfth year of in Singapore Art Week. Years. Yeah, yeah, but just the open art, year for, for the new fair called Art the, 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 Sorry, say that again. For the new fair called It's called Art SG. Art SG, yeah. Yeah, just for the, the, the so the so the, the art fair I'm mixing it up is in its second year, but Singapore Art Week has been going for, for uh, twelve years. years. Yeah, and that's interesting. And as as I understand it, it's a little bit like it, the art fair is part of a a more general cultural celebration that includes public museum exhibitions as well as the commercial art fair. So the model is more, I, I, I would suggest that the model is less like, say, Freeze in London, where generally where generally speaking, the big auction houses and commercial galleries centre a lot of new exhibitions and, and sales around the Freeze London Art Week in October. But like Tate and the National Gallery don't. They don't really want anything to do with the commercial art world. Whereas I understand it, like the model in Torino in Italy, they have this art fair called Artissima, which we mm-hmm. I've been taking the students to. We haven't been recently, but for about 15 years ago, we started going there. And what attracted me to that was that it's part of a general celebration of, of modern contemporary art in in Torino around the whole place you know and there are special exhibitions in the in the in the big galleries because of the presence of the art fair and the art fair itself was much less obviously commercial than mm-hmm. some art fairs so it sounds to, I, I am i right in saying that the singapore art fair has become part of that broader cultural celebratory model yeah i think i really i really love the way you describe it like a celebration of culture and art mm. in singapore and i think we're noticing you know, kind of like a trend in the world as well, where people, I think a lot of people no longer want to travel just for an art fair, but more of an art week. So, you know, whatever is happening in that city, because especially during Singapore Art Week, it was almost like a reunion, you know, meeting friends, collectors or industry professionals from, you know, not just Southeast Asia, but Hong Kong, China, and even some flying in from the US and Europe. 
just to because everyone's like you know so interested about what's happening in Singapore. So I think it's really about the, like the whole art ecosystem and especially institutions working together. Yeah. So so although like you know the you no know, Singapore doesn't really like um our institutions to be in any way commercial or related to the art market, but we do. But we we did have like a national gallery and a Singapore Art Museum kind of collaborating on parties and and events. Yes, yeah. I think I think that made made a really big difference, and it made it feel more of like um, a whole country celebration. And Singapore Art Fair is a very new art fair, a new kid on the block, as it were. I know I remember reading reports and after the first edition that that there were a couple of the big international, you know, Western commercial galleries showed that first year, but were disappointed. You know, they I think that a a a that would mean that they're probably not acquiring many new collectors, potential collectors. Mm-hmm. B, they're not having big sales because they aren't back this year. And I, I think the number of stands has gone down something like by about a third. So uh, do, you, do you know what the reasons were for making it a slightly smaller fair? And, you know, how might they, res- does it matter to Singaporeans that, that the big international Galleries like Western galleries, for example, aren't there this year. Does that really matter? If it's a, is it a local celebration, or would, or do you think the intention is to is to attract people coming in from all over the world, not just for the experience of the art, but also to buy art? Yeah, I think I think the fair is really targeting Southeast Asia, so it's 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 meant to be a regional fair. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the galleries coming back, I don't think the collectors. Or visitors care which galleries are there, mm-hmm. but more of like last year, I think it was. I mean, it was the first time that RSG was happening, so it was more of like an experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was you know also figuring out you know um, what kind of collectors are there, what different tastes there are, and mm-hmm. also I think the perhaps the price point of the artworks because although there are a lot of wealthy people living in Singapore, not many of them are collectors. Which, yeah, which means that, you know, maybe they don't have the habit of spending large amounts on, on artwork. So the good, the good thing about the Singapore Art Week, which includes a commercial art fair as part of the package, as it were, presumably the hope is that you're also educating local people who might want to start collecting art and eventually high end art. You're presumably educating them to see that this is actually a, a worthy thing to visit and to socialize in and to be seen seen socializing in and and eventually to become collectors themselves. But I guess it sounds as though it's it's a kind of educational project as well. Yeah, I I, I think because Singapore is such, you know, such a new country to art collecting, mm-hmm. I think the education, the art education is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, it takes time. Mm-hmm. I would say at least another five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, when galleries or people come to Singapore, you know, maybe the expectations have to be managed as well. Absolutely. And of course, that's something we've already touched upon is and that the world looking at the Singapore art scene is very interested in. There's definitely, you know, I think there's definitely a positive feeling that Singapore could become now since what's happened in Hong Kong, which is also a free port, of course, but Singapore, because of the politics of Hong Kong at the moment, it could become the new go-to hub for the international art world and art market in Southeast Asia. It, would that be a hope, do you think, of some Singaporeans? Well, I think I think Singapore is already a hub for Southeast Asia. Sure. I mean, Hong Kong has the advantage because they are the whole country is a free port and you know, it's so close to mainland China and that's the advantage of Hong Kong. And if you see, you know, all the major auction houses, they still have the Asia headquarters in Hong Kong and they're actually expanding. Whereas we don't, we don't really have that in Singapore. We have, you know, maybe a small office with four or five people for Mm -hmm. the auction houses. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we don't have any blue chip galleries in Singapore as well. And the politics of Hong Kong, you don't, that isn't going to particularly affect the, the working of the art world and particularly the commercial art world in Hong Kong. Uh, what has happened politically recently? So, so maybe, maybe it's a false expectation that every that world will move out of Hong Kong into Singapore. Yeah, I mean, I think they are two completely different different cities. Like you know, Hong Kong has the 
has the advantages, Singapore has the advantages. So I think, you know, they, and even Tai, tai Taipei as well. So I think the three of them, they really go hand in hand. And I don't think there's really much competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. forget, you know, that we forget that all of these nations that we, that we've mentioned and now Taiwan and Taipei, the mm-hmm. city in Taiwan, you know, that they, they, they all have really, really vibrant art, contemporary art scenes. <laughs> that people don't quite often often all we hear about usually is the the political news and we mm. don't often hear about you know what's happening in places like taiwan or, or singapore and, and when, when these things do happen like the singapore art week you know it, it is a big event and people are very interested in it you know the art newspapers very interested in it just to see how it's going to go and how it might relocate but it's, I, th- I think what's it's interesting talking to you laura as as an insider in the fact that you know that the cultural the cultural structures are are just different from those that we might expect in say london or new york anyway uh, and that it's rather patri- i mean i can actually i apologize because i can actually feel myself through the through this whole conversation coming across maybe as a bit patronizing and a kind of western guy and so on you know and i'm i'm kind of very aware of that i'm not meaning to be patronizing it's just i'm 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 sincerely interested in in the workings of that art world in singapore you know having experienced it earlier in the millennium and it's i think it's wonderful that it does sound as though that's growing i mean maybe we could finish by you 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 you're now i think in brussels you're traveling at the moment for 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 your own for other work that you're involved in you did go to the you did experience the singapore art week and um sg could you talk a little bit about your own personal subjective experiences yeah and actually i wanted to bring up an interesting point that wasn't really covered that wasn't talked about so much in all the art media covering singapore art week is that one very interesting aspect is the foreign-based collector involvement compared to the local collectors Mm-hmm. So this year we saw several initiatives from from private individuals such as collector shows, patron funded shows, or even opening up their homes to visitors, mm-hmm. but all from foreign collectors based in Singapore and only one show from local collectors. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, perhaps this is due to our culture. You know, Singaporeans, I think we value privacy quite a lot and we don't really open our home to strangers. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, the, I think, I feel like a lot of the energy and vibrancy is actually coming from the foreigners living in Singapore. So, for example, we had Pierre Laurenet. He's a French collector, patron. He had a show of his personal collection in Gilman Barracks for the second year in a row. Um, Andreas Till, he's Malaysian, a Malaysian businessman, and he founded a non-profit called the Institutum, um, which organized this this huge show, you know, over, he, like, you know, they brought in over 100 works from private collections all around Asia. And it was curated by Zoe Whitley from Chisholm Hill Gallery in London. So that was really, I think, the highlight of Gilman Barrett. Ellen and Yen Lo, this Hong Kong couple from Hong Kong who are now splitting their time between Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. So they funded a show. Yeah. Just, um, an, a duo artist show in an external location. Um, and also two very well-known foreign collectors based in Singapore, uh, Lou Samson from the Philippines and Jim Anderson from Minneapolis, who, you know, every year they open their homes to young collectors or visitors um, or industry professionals. And yeah, and I think this year from Singaporeans, we didn't really see uh, many initiatives um, except for one show one group show by 15 Singaporean collectors, which actually came out very organically from like a WhatsApp group. Yeah, so I think I think it was a really rare occurrence, but also quite, I think, a time, yeah, also a time of, I, I think, like better things to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's to be interesting. So so again, it sounds, I mean, that, that's another thing that differs from the the Western model is, I, I remember when I was out there that, that students from Indonesia and Malaysia, for example, they was that the the way that you see contemporary art in particular is you visit people's private homes, and that although that does exist in places like London, it's 
it's not it doesn't become part of like a, a celebration of art in London that a lot of people open their homes so that members of the public can just go in and walk around that just doesn't happen so that uh, and that that I think is something that is actually inherent in the structures of the art world in in Southeast Asia and Singapore itself yeah yeah and it's it's quite nice you know it's nice to it's really really nice I think that people open open their homes up in that way and in a sense I guess that is them being philanthropic you know, and at the same time, I, I guess positioning themselves socially in a world of of, of art collectors, and you know, maybe maybe people who haven't got those kind of collections yet might now might be visiting those homes and thinking, "I've got money, I can create a collection like this." So, I guess that may be the way that that market develops within Singapore. Yeah, and I, I think you know a lot of it is about you know encouragement and inspiration and education yeah. for local people as well. And and in Singapore, I remember I remember hearing that I don't know if it's changed, probably not. I remember hearing that the education of children, you know, up until particularly up until degree level, is very strict. You know, they mm -hmm. still have, as I understand it, they still have corporal punishment, and you know, which I, which I had when I was at school, but certainly no one in the UK now. You're not allowed to use corporal punishment on anyone. So it's very strict, and I think maybe a lot of people are are coming into Singapore because it gives their children a very good education, albeit mm. the negative side of that being the strictness. But I, I, as I understand it, they're very well educated and to compete with the with the increasingly competitive world of educated people, if you like. And do they teach the history of art in the schools, do you know? In pre-tertiary institutions, um, when I was in school in Singapore, mm -hmm. so maybe about 15, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. They didn't teach art history. So mm -hmm. we had like practical art classes, mm -hmm. but we didn't know there was no history of art classes. Mm -hmm. But, but I believe that, I believe that is changing. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a norm with, we, we have increasing numbers of um, Southeast Asian, particularly Chinese students at the moment studying the MA art business. And, and, and they just, they, they don't seem to, they have to come to the West to do art traditional art history courses but of course art history is a western discipline and it's biased it's very sort of pro the western development so what i would hope for in the future in terms of education in southeast asia is that is that you start teaching courses which are about the history that you develop the history of like southeast asian art as a, mm -hmm. as a discipline in its own right and not just look up to if you like the the western models of art history does that kind of make sense no yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, because otherwise there's no pride, there's no cultural pride in your own artistic tradition, which is, which would be mm -hmm. a shame, you know. Yeah. Now, that's interesting to know, actually. But, of course, in this country, the teaching of art history, sadly, is all, all read, also disappearing, other than in kind of like fee-paying schools. Mm -hmm. Particularly, it's very gender-inverse, so particularly girls' schools. It's very hard for boys to, you know, not that many boys' schools, single-sex boys' schools in the UK, offer art history because it's still seen as a rather feminine soft subject which is a shame mm. uh, so there's, there's all sorts of interesting dynamics i think in the teaching of art history Laura, yeah. can you say something about did you have anything else to say about your experience at the singapore art week yeah i wanted to to uh, maybe maybe highlight one other interesting aspect about singapore and which you don't really see in the west is that another thing that we are lacking maybe is the art criticism mm -hmm. Yeah, because like most of the newspapers in Singapore are government owned. Yeah. And so it's, it's very difficult for like arts journalists who write for these publications to have an impartial view. You know, they, you know, they can't, I've, I've known either freelance journalists who cover different sections of the arts who are asked to leave because they were being too critical. Oh, uh, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or either that or, you know, they, the local journalists, they don't have a good knowledge of the arts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so no, even for myself, I yeah, I do have to rely on my own research and, you know, reading international art media, like like Art Review, for more analytical judgment of important art shows or events. Yeah, and it can be almost the opposite in, in like, the UK, i.e. critics can be really damning and destroy people's careers, often unnecessarily and unfairly, you know, so it works both ways, <laughs> that kind of, yeah. but I, I get where you're coming from. If you haven't got honest objective academically informed peer-reviewed art criticism then how can you expect collectors and consumers of art 
in a nation to, to understand what what is interesting and what isn't interesting or what is hot and what is not what is good and what is not so good i can i can understand. Yeah. yeah and and i think also very often in your online and print media um because you know advertising is a huge source of income for these publications mm-hmm. but in local in local publications uh, we can't tell which ones are sponsored or which yeah. ones are paid for interesting interesting and then yes. moving moving to the educate you know a little bit back to that educational idea uh, do you want to tell the listeners something about your own publications and your publishing company and how that might be feeding into that educational idea yeah so so cinema art publishing is actually it was founded during covid when i moved back to singapore from hong kong and it's my passion project so yeah so it's it's just been like a dream with working on these publications so we do only we specialize in illustrated non-fiction books for children and we do you know very niche topics like art culture sustainability technology so we actually started out with a collection of six art books which are like um introductory books to the lives of different artists and the most recent that we just published is about a late filipino artist called pasita abad and she's in the middle of a retrospective in north america right now yeah so the yeah so she wasn't very well known um outside of the philippines until the retrospective and yeah we're just so happy that the response has been really positive um as, and especially since you know like southeast asia is quite becoming quite an an interest like the region of southeast asia um in the world and also because like people well people in the west they, they consider asians like people of color Yes, yeah, so I think it's it's been quite well received so far. Very yeah, so I think we hope to yeah continue publishing more books on Southeast Asian artists. That's fantastic because I think some of the early ones were, if I remember rightly, were Western artists, were they? Yeah, like a mix of Western and Asian. Yeah, a male and yeah. female. Male and female, yes. Which is great. So and these are for children. They're they're I've seen them. They're they're really lovely, touching books that you know. I wish that I'd been able to give my son when he was little <laughs> growing up. And, and you know, maybe we don't. I have actually, I have seen similar, I think there are similar publications you might be aware of that, that not aren't your publishing company. Maybe people have jumped on that bandwagon. I don't know. You do see kids' books about individual artists. Mm-hmm. Like You didn't do Frida Kahlo, did you? No, no, I, I didn't. Yeah, I think do I've seen one on Frida Kahlo. Yeah. 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 So there. Anyway, Laura, thank you. You know, there's there's obviously a lot more to 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 learn about that Singaporean arts art scene, and you know, it, it, it we're still in the middle of Singapore Art Week. It'd be very interesting to see how the Western <laughs> press, uh, you know, views views whether it's successful or not this year. But I think what I've learned from it, and I think the listeners will have learned from this, is that maybe we're looking at it through the lo- wrong lens from the Western viewpoint. Everything has to be successful. We have to see the presence of the big, you know, two or three of the big international western-based commercial dealers there and it it doesn't sound to me at the moment as though that's what it's about it sounds to me as though you're very the singaporeans are on one level very smartly the people involved in the art scene anyway are very very organically growing trying to grow this interest in the art of southeast asia in particular and to celebrate it and i think you know that is wonderful that it becomes part of a a local celebration rather than just Oh, let's show off how wealthy I am and go and be seen buying art and take selfies of myself with it. It sounds as though it's a bit more than that. It's a bit more of a cultural, a culturally, a cultural celebration. Yeah, I think yeah, a cultural celebration and um, you know, also a big social event and meeting point. Yeah. Um, for for collectors and visitors. I think we have a lot to learn. We still have this thorny symbiosis, I would say, between the academic public sector and the commercial art world. Mm-hmm. Our 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 orthodox art history university departments are still most of the academics are often openly anti-market. You know, don't ever talk about the value of a work of art when you're studying art history. And I, I think, mm-hmm. I think that you know, so they wouldn't, you know, therefore Tate Modern and Tate Britain and the National Gallery in London, for example, the British Museum, would not want to get involved with collateral events. We might call them when freeze art fair is on whereas it sounds to me mm-hmm. as though we're missing a trick there it's a real shame that, that that we're seeing somehow that that commercial art world is somehow divorced from the 
from the collections, which are, of course, all based on the fact that there have been the child sarges of the world and people prepared to be philanthropists and buy the work of emerging artists and take a risk on them, mm-hmm. which, of course, public galleries can't do. They can't they can't take financial risks in an emerging artist in case they don't mm-hmm. end up being very well known. So it's a kind of I think we have a lot to learn from those models, you know, that are developing in Singapore. So I'd like to thank you very much, Laura, on on behalf of all the listeners and, and myself and my students for sharing those very, very interesting ideas and, and letting us know, giving us knowledge and enlightening us on what's been happening uh, in Singapore, particularly during the current Singapore Art Week. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was such a pleasure you know, being able to talk about Singapore and Singapore Art Week.